First Peter chapter four, verse twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray one more time. Father, help us understand. Give us clear insight. And Father, though we are dealing with and talking about pain and suffering this morning, may it not be a sorrowful study, but encouraging. I ask for the building up of the body, the building up of your people. And Father, if there's anyone here among us this morning who doesn't consider themselves a believer, or is not sure about Jesus, or has never made that that commitment to you, to follow you, to, to be one of yours, Lord, I just pray they would have open ears to hear what we're talking about. And to perceive and understand something of what this faith is. And again, for those of us who have this faith and who walk with you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would solidify and strengthen and build up your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. First Peter really comes as a surprise to intellectuals and academics and scholars. I've told you before, a few weeks ago when we first opened up this book, that there were those who say Peter couldn't have written, written this book, it's just too smart. You know, making an assumption that a Galilean fisherman can't be smart. Making the assumption also that it wasn't the Holy Spirit who filled him to write this letter. The Spirit is brilliant, and so Peter is brilliant in this letter. And truly the author of this letter. But what he writes about is one of the meteor spreads in the New Testament. I mean, of all the New Testament letters, and that includes the letters of Paul, 1 Peter is heavy-duty stuff. It's like a table spread before us in the presence of our enemies. An articulate invitation to share in the sufferings of Christ. And we've been talking about that in every study. That's what undergirds this letter of Peter. Now again, don't be bummed out and don't think that our discussion of suffering this morning is is going to be heavy and sorrowful, but it is an intense reality that Peter addresses here and that I think every believer ought to address right at the beginning of our walk. Something often put off and not discussed so much because you don't want to discourage people. Hey, come to Jesus and suffer, you know? So we don't talk about suffering so much, except when we're in the throes of it, and then we got to pull out some comforting psalms or something just to get by. But Paul agrees with Peter just a year or two to, prior to the writing of this letter. Paul talked about it as the desire of the fellowship of his sufferings. What a weirdo. 
Paul says, I, I want that. He says in Philippians 3 verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and I say, yes, Paul, and the power of His resurrection, and I say, amen, and the fellowship of His sufferings, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed, to his death? And Peter says here, share the sufferings of Christ. And you know it is far too easy for those of us who want to get to know Jesus to look at the Peters and the Pauls of the world and say, these guys are a little too intense. These are the fanatics. These are guys who are out on the fringe. I understand. Hey, they're missionaries. They're going to suffer. But not us at home. We write the checks so that they can suffer. (laughs) I don't want to deal with my suffering and so this whole idea of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings we can attribute that to Paul and say wow, what a studly follower of Jesus but that's not me suffering for Christ now I will grant you it is not Christianity 101 although it should be This should be something that should be shared in a new believer's class. Right out of the gate, right at the beginning, the quality of suffering and why suffering is part of the deal. But what it truly shows up as is a 400 level major's practicum course. Something that that comes up down the line. Something that's dealt with further on. And truly, to want to suffer for Christ is... Peter writes and as Paul writes to desire the fellowship of his sufferings that is an outlook that most often comes later usually shows up when you've had some life some experience some mileage behind you and we see that in Peter think about this a 30 years younger Peter on the night of Jesus greatest suffering skittered off like a scared sheep he wasn't ready to suffer He wasn't ready to face that, nor were any of the disciples. They all fled Jesus in the garden, just as He said they would. Matthew 26, verse 31, He said, You will all fall away because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, though all may fall away because of you. And I wonder if Peter wasn't pointing at the rest of the disciples. And they may fall away, but I will never fall away. Yeah. See, that's the young believer with no experience. I'll stand. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And how many of you who are more seasoned perhaps in your faith, more mature, you might consider yourself, you've walked for a while with Jesus, how many times have you denied Him in your lifespan? Peter got it out of the way right up front. (laughs) But that's some of what happens. Look at the difference between Peter then and Peter now. Peter then, running away, scared, frightened. 
Not standing, not willing to bear up the suffering. Peter now, 30 years later, having walked with the Spirit, having suffered in his life and in his ministry, and about to, soon after this, a year, two, maybe three years later, he would be dead by execution. What's the difference? 30 years. Mileage. And moving through those 30 years, get this, with the resident Spirit of God with him. Peter grew up. He learned. You ever wonder why Jesus told them they were going to flee? Why earlier that very evening He warned the apostles, hey, you're going to run away. It wasn't even a warning really. It wasn't, hey, you're going to be tempted to run away, so don't do it. It was, you're going to run away. You're going to flee. You are going to see daddle when the suffering gets tough. You're out of here. He says it as a statement of fact. Why does he say it? And I think he was setting them up. Jesus was setting them up. Oh, not for failure, but for forgiveness. Because note what he also said to them at that time. And I will go ahead of you to the Galilee. You're going to fall away tonight, but I'll see you in the Galilee. You're going to betray me, but I'll see you afterwards. That sense of the forgiveness of Christ. He was preparing them on the night of His betrayal, on the night that He would be handed over. Prior to the morning of His crucifixion, He was preparing them for their full pardon. After all was said and done. Why would Jesus do that? One word. Beloved. Beloved. They were His beloved. He loved His followers. Beloved, it's the first word we come to in our study this morning. Verse 12 begins, Beloved. I want you to understand what that word is. In the Greek, it's agapetos. From agape. So when you see the word beloved, this is not just like sweetie. Or a term of endearment, affection, honey. This is the unconditionally loved. When Peter calls the readers, the recipients of this this letter, the beloved, he's talking to the unconditionally loved. And so they were. So were the disciples. So are you in Christ Jesus. And and this is perhaps more important even to understand than the potentiality of suffering in a follower's life. In fact, this is the one right at the very beginning. You've got to understand. You've got to know. You've got to grasp. You are agapetos. In Christ Jesus, the moment you put your faith in Him, when you trust in Him, you instantly become agapetos, beloved. And again, not just bro, sweetie, beloved. i got to start there. we got to pause on this one word because midweek something happened to me. We had a a great study, a meaty study. In fact, on Wednesday night, as we were going through the the latter part of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, to me, it was big slabs of beef on the bone served on iron plates. You know, it was heavy stuff. It was intense theology. And we're going through this and studying these things. And I love getting into this stuff. But afterwards, the best thing happened to me that it happened all evening. The sister came forward. I'm not going to say who it was, but she's a relatively new believer. 
And she came forward and sat down, and, and, and I, I noticed she looks like she wants to talk. I went and sat down with her and said, hey, what's going on? You want to talk about something? And I expected, you know, I've got this going on in my life, or I have this problem here, or, or this thing happened, and I'd like some prayers for this. No, she had tears in her eyes, desperate to understand what we had been talking about. Frustrated because she felt like there was so much that she didn't know. So many things that I was drawing off in the, in the study. And by the way, it served as a reminder to me personally as a pastor, don't just assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. I mean, we were looking at verse 19 in chapter 3, which says, In which Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Talking about what happened between Jesus' death and His resurrection and that time and the three days in between. And there's massive Scripture on that and there's great teaching on that in the Bible. But if you're new to Christ and you hear that for the first time, He what? He went where? How does that work? And there was so much more in the study that was just, it was intense. And again, talking about suffering. And this dear sister said, I want so badly to understand these things. Man, that touched me. But I want to tell you what I told her. And it was something I needed to be made aware of again. Listen. Your knowledge or comprehension of the Bible is not the measure of your value to God. Your walk of faith in Him, even a person's willingness to suffer, is not what endears you to Jesus Christ. You know what it is? Faith. Trust. You trust Jesus and you are the beloved. Before you've done anything. And by the way, there is nothing you can do once you become a Christian. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. He already loves you with an everlasting, eternal love. An unconditional, beloved love. He loves you so much, you can't possibly achieve a higher love from God. And if we don't understand that, we start to spend a lifetime thinking, if I learn just a little bit more, I'll be more approved. If I try a little harder, I'll be more blessed. If I suffer for Jesus, then somehow, maybe then God will look at me and go, okay, now you have proven yourself worthy. Listen, you do not prove yourself worthy. God makes you worthy. You are beloved. And that's what we are invited to walk in. I think if the world understood that, we'd have far more people rushing the churches. Wait, I can be that? You're telling me that if I trust Him, that's it? I I, I become beloved by Him? Yes, absolutely, that is it. But most of us have never really fully understood that kind of unconditional love. We don't typically get it from other human beings. We may say we love each other unconditionally, But there are always conditions, aren't there? Don't there tend to be things that happen in life, in family, in marriage, in parenting, in upbringing, where you realize I'm loved until I do this? I'm cared for unless I do this? We put conditions on all kinds of love. And so we come to Jesus who says, you are unconditionally loved. And we go, ah, (laughs) that's not been my experience. Humanity does not unconditionally love, typically. If we unconditionally love, it's because we have learned to do so from the one who calls us the beloved. Are you with me? You are beloved. 
You are beloved. You are beloved. Before you suffer one ounce of pain for Jesus, before you gain one iota of biblical knowledge, before you even get a micron of spiritual effort out there, you are agapetos, which means the baby Christian and the balding theologian are the same before God. Loved by Jesus unconditionally. That undergirds everything we're going to talk about this morning. Because we understand, or we come to this, and we struggle with it, again, because it's not the human experience. But we are, by God, unconditionally loved through faith in Jesus Christ. We just trust Him, and He loves us. But the question then arises, then why the pain? Then why is there suffering in the world? Why would a loving God allow such suffering? And why do we as Christians, especially if I gave my life to Jesus and now this? You ever heard yourself asking, saying, God, why would you? How could you? If you've ever, (laughs) never. If you've ever said that, and I'm guessing most of us have, then we're in this place of knowing, okay, we've been told we're beloved, but there's suffering. How does that work? Is suffering the great oops of creation? He did such a good job. The oceans and the mountains and the streams and the trees and the animals. I mean, it's just amazing. Creation's awesome. (laughs) Except for suffering. He kind of blew it on that one. Or maybe it was God's oversight, some would say. There is an entire theology wrapped around this called open theism. It's kind of theology that just makes me mad. It's also called process theology. Open theism, process theology, and it's an attempt to respond to suffering and pain in the world. But it basically teaches that God is in process. He's learning. He hasn't quite got it all together. He's doing his best. I mean, cut him some slack. He created a marvelous, wonderful world, but he hasn't quite figured it all out. He's doing better. That's open theism. It's stupid. But you know, no, no, really, think about it. I mean, God's over here dealing with this suffering and trying to be, bring some comfort and, and fix this situation. But over here, oh, oh, oh no, something's happening over here. i got to get over there and share and fix that. Oh, no. And God can't see the future in open theism. Why would someone believe that? Well, why would you believe in a God who knows the future and knows you're going to suffer but calls you beloved? How does that work? How can you tell me He's the God of love? Especially if He knows what is about to come. If He sees ahead of time my sorrow that I don't even see and then allows it anyway? Well, first of all, you are beloved. Make no mistake about it. But you need to understand something about the God of the Bible who is the great I Am who said this about Himself in Isaiah 46 verse 8. Remember this and be assured or be firm in your understanding. Recall it to mind, you sinners. (laughs) Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's God. The great I Am, who always is, which means ever-present, which means He knows about your suffering past, He knows about your suffering right now, and He sees your suffering coming. And yet, 
loves you with an unconditional love. I, I don't understand, Father. Well, understand this, beloved. Suffering doesn't just get by God. The truth of the matter is we all suffer. All of us. We will all suffer. And I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about humanity. Because suffering is endemic to the human condition. There is no avoiding it. You will, if you haven't, you will at some point in your life suffer. It's going to come. Sometimes it comes as unexpectedly as putting a little doggy to sleep as we had to do this last week. How depressing. For all the ripping and ragging I've done on Reggie over the years. I know, I was here, I heard me. I love that little guy. And we had to put him to sleep. He had a stroke Sunday night, Monday morning we're at the vet, and it was the most traumatic moment of the last, I don't know, decade. It's a dog. Just a dog, you know. And we had to put him down. It was awful. The house has been just empty, you know, kind of sad. Suffering. I didn't see that one coming. He did. He did. He knew. God, how could... Why did... Listen. Here's the thing. We're all going to suffer. The question is, are you going to be led through it by the Good Shepherd? He is the Good Shepherd who leads through the valley of the shadow of death. Could we even know joy without sorrow? I mean, think about that. Will we understand what joy was if there wasn't sorrow on the other side? Will we understand healing without disease? I've been healed of what? I don't know, but I've been healed. Could we comprehend comfort without distress in the world? To know I've been comforted, I have to know what it means to be distressed. Could we realize rest without exhaustion? I mean, all these negative things that we say, man, I wish it wasn't here, and someday it won't be. But we are in a training, education, school, a school of contrast, where pain and suffering are a couple of the professors, and I don't like those professors, but man, I'll tell you what, I'm learning. They're tough professors, educating me in the difference between light and dark, between right and wrong, between bliss and pain, between good and evil. The fact that I see all these things and and people will say, yeah, and it's Adam and Eve's fault for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They just hadn't eaten the tree. Well, who planted the tree there in the first place? Why would God do that? We've studied that before to introduce choice and free will because that's what love does. But I think also part of that to introduce an education in things that we could not comprehend otherwise Suffering is part of the deal. It's going to come to all people. Excuse me. The question is this. Will you suffer? Or will you suffer in Christ? That's the only distinction that you can make this morning. So this morning I want to look at this. Think about this more. Beloved, as we go forward, Peter is going to talk about how Christians handle suffering. How are we to deal with? with this issue of suffering and give me a minute so we're going to begin with this we need four things to jot down if you're a note taker you might want to write these down somewhere number one and by the way each one of these four things are going to have two parts to them number one don't be surprised 
Christians in suffering are not surprised. Do not be surprised. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. As we already recognize, suffering is endemic to the human condition. It's interesting to me what Christian science teaches on this. Which, by the way, is a weird title. Christian science. I heard one pastor refer to it like this. It's like grape nuts. (laughs) Because, you know, I think it was Seinfeld who said, you look at the box and there are no nuts. And there are no grapes. Why do you call it grape nuts? Christian science is not Christian, nor is it science. How does that work? Christian scientists believe and teach that suffering, it just doesn't exist. It's an illusion. It's not real. In fact, the founder of Christian science, Mary Baker, Eddie Glover, Patterson Fry, right? That alone should tell you something. She claimed not only did suffering not exist, but death does not exist either. It's an illusion. She's dead now. But it's that ignorance. You know, it's that saying, well, I'm just going to look the other way. See, you may not be a Christian scientist, but I bet you've practiced. What do you mean? When suffering comes, but you ignore it. I'm just not going to deal with that. I'm going to engage in more pleasure because by engaging in the pleasure, I can ignore the suffering that's there and the pain that's there because I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to go over here, Christian scientist. My suffering's an illusion. But you know it's not. Don't be surprised. It's going to come. It happens. It's part of life. And even more so, (laughs) it's part of Christian life. It's part of the deal. Funny thing is, though we all know suffering is real, and we see it around us, when it happens to us, we say, whoa, wait a minute, why me? Why me? Well, I understand when he suffers or she suffers. I, I, you know, I'm compassionate for the suffering of others, but when I get into this painful situation, why me, Lord? You know what a better question is? Why not me? Why not me? Why am I not suffering right now? Don't be surprised. Christianity is not the offer of pain-free, prosperous living. If you've heard that it is, you were taught wrong. The whole idea of the prosperity gospel. It's not that God doesn't want to bless. It's not that God's not caring for His people. But listen clearly here. Christianity not only doesn't offer pain-free living, it guarantees suffering. If you give your life to Jesus, you are going to suffer for it. You cannot avoid it. Ultimately, at some point, at some time, you will suffer for the sake of just following Jesus. Now you might say, so why would anybody do it? If you were at at a, a car place, and you were signing the papers for this beautiful new car... And, and, and the guy selling you the car said, oh, by the way, about five miles down the road, your engine's going to blow up. Have a nice day. <laughs> Would you buy the car? And I am here to tell you this morning that in following Jesus, you will suffer for it. The engine's going to blow up. The wheels are going to come off at some point. Why would I even do that in the first place? Because again, everybody suffers. You're either going to suffer 
or you're going to suffer in Christ. And let me tell you something about suffering in Christ, with Christ, for Christ. It takes on an entirely new dimension. This is Paul saying, I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. This is Peter saying, share the sufferings of Christ. Because suffering with Jesus is completely different. There's there's purpose to the pain. We talked about this two weeks ago. There is substance to the sorrow. There is meaning in the misery. Suddenly it's not just suffering for suffering's sake. And to suffer in this world with no point to it is the most empty and meaningless thing a person can do. Why are you suffering? I don't know. Just Life sinks. I have life is good shirts. I like those. But without Jesus, I would be wearing life stinks shirts. It's just the way it is. And what's the point and purpose to it? Now watch this. Peter describes this in verse 12 as a fiery ordeal. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Why would he say that? Why why would he describe it in that way? It's so interesting. Beginning July 16th, 64 AD, for nine straight days, Rome burned. Now we mentioned this when we first opened up the letter. That historians recognize that the one who caused the fire was Nero. That he wanted Rome to burn. And in fact, part of how we know that is Roman soldiers kept people from putting out the fires as their homes and businesses were burning to the ground. Soldiers were dispatched throughout the city to not allow people to try and fight the flames. So for nine days, a constant burning until the city was just in ashes. And at that point, citizens of Rome were furious with Nero. But he was ready for them. It was the Christians. They did it. They're the one, you know, they're the outsiders of society anyway. They don't like the way our Roman society lives. So they're trying to show us something. They're the ones who started the fire and thus began a 200 year persecution, bloody and terroristic, by Rome against Christians. Part of that would be Nero acting out in such a sick and twisted way. Some of you have heard this, but Christians in this persecution were taken and dipped in hot wax and put up on poles in Nero's garden and set ablaze. And none of those Christians saw it coming. They weren't looking for that. They had no. When Peter wrote this, if our timing is correct, and I believe it was, a year or two before the fires broke out, and yet he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. This is a prophetic warning. This letter came as a prophecy ahead of time. God saying, prior to suffering, share the sufferings of Christ. Teaching this ahead. Preparing people. It's got to be hard. This is what's coming. And you know what? Those early Christians, they could not possibly have known the positive impact of persecution on church growth. Now, in my years of ministry, I've read a lot of church growth books. A lot of principles for church growth and how to make a church grow. And when we started the bridge, we threw them all away because we were in a barn. In fact, I think I've said before, we really ought to write a new book which shows you how not to grow a church. Because we did all of those things. Anything that would not help growth, you know, things like they would say, if your parking lot is more than 80% full, you're not going to grow, so you need to address the problem. We were in a barn where Rod and Barb Gilmore's driveway was our parking lot. We were 80% full on our first Sunday. And there weren't even that many people there. There just wasn't any room to park. 
Did we, you know, create more parking? No. No. So what grew the church? Well, God did. Beyond that, we just don't know. I don't know. Point is this. First century Christians didn't know the extent to which persecution was going to grow the church. They had no idea. Until Peter's letter comes, Paul's letter, they start talking about this suffering and being prepared to suffer for Christ and, and, and gearing up and recognizing we're heading into the spiritual warfare and all of this. And Tertullian would later say the blood of martyrs is seed. It is said that upwards of perhaps as many as 10 million Christians were martyred in the first 200 years of the church. Simply because they believed in Jesus. They just trusted Him. I know, this is not like the evangelistic message of the week, and you're thinking, I brought my friend this morning, and this is what they're hearing? (laughs) You need to hear it. You need to understand. These fiery ordeals, the word fiery ordeal, it's pyrosis. It's where we get the word pyro. Pyrotechnics or pyromania. And the word is translated burning, but it also has another deeper, more profound translation. It means a refiner's fire. Don't be surprised at the refiner's fire. Now here we start to get to the Christian mentality of suffering and dealing with it. Peter already said back in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the smelter's fire. So listen, don't be surprised. Be sanctified at suffering. And when you suffer and when you go through the hardships of life, don't be surprised. Be sanctified in them. God is working out the mess. God is purifying the heart. God is is cleansing you Paul put it this way at Romans 5.3, we exult in our tribulations. That's just weird, but that's what he said, and it's true. We exult in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And it's a hope, he says, that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This suffering is a good thing in that it produces sanctification. So don't be surprised at it. Be sanctified. Jeremiah the prophet talked about this sanctification process. He's the one who prophesied right before Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and wiped out the people of Judah and took them into captivity, 586 B.C. And Jeremiah was speaking, prophesying by God to a people who were suffering for no reason. See, that's suffering in this world. Suffering without cause. Uh, Suffering without reason, without refinement. It's just tragic. When I see a non-believer suffering, going through pain and anguish in this world, and there's no good result, that's heartbreaking. But to suffer for Christ is sanctification. Now, Jeremiah is talking to these people who are not suffering for faith. And they're not going to suffer for faith. In fact, they're going to suffer because of rebellion. And he says, Jeremiah 6.29, God says, The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain, the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. They call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. It is an utter waste to suffer in this life. I remember reading back in high school, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. 
Franco was a Holocaust survivor and talking about the meaningless of the pain and the suffering that the people went through. But there was sanctification. In fact, I don't have time to go into this, but through that pain and suffering, the nation of Israel was birthed. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But that aside, listen, to suffer needlessly is just sad. But to suffer in, for, through, by Jesus, to be with Him in suffering, that has precious value to it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, if any man builds on the foundation, which he just said is Jesus, if anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus with gold, or silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he built on it, remain, built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. It's a fire of purification. Don't be surprised be sanctified. The Christian mentality is I accept suffering in, with, and for Jesus because it's refining. It's purifying. It is sanctifying me. And guess what else? It's a reason to rejoice. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. So number two, don't be sorrowful. Don't be surprised, be sanctified, but also don't be sorrowful in your suffering. The last thing a follower of Jesus Christ ought to do is walk around in self-pity. Whoa, life just... You know, I joke about from time to time that sour, dour look on the face of the believer in church on Sunday, praising the Lord... For the joy in my life. I mean, come on, man. Don't be sorrowful. Rejoice in your sufferings. Now I know that's even weirder. Not only am I supposed to suffer as part of the deal, but now I'm supposed to rejoice in it? Hey, what did Yaakov say? James, chapter 3, verse 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's not easy to do, but man, to joyfully... (laughs) How's your week? It's been terrible! (laughs) Praise the Lord! This has been an awful month! Hallelujah! That's what he's saying. Consider it joy. Why? Because when you encounter various trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. On the one hand, I say, I want to be strong in my faith, but on the other, I don't want to suffer for it. Well, how else are you going to get strong? It produces endurance. He says, let endurance have its perfect result so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I guarantee you this, the long-term faithful Christian has suffered much. Because each suffering and each trial and each difficulty he or she walks through with Jesus makes you stronger, builds you up, purifies you more so that you are not only sorrowful, you're strengthened. That's not the fill-in, by the way. Don't be sorrowful. C.S. Lewis was once asked this question. Why do the righteous suffer? And he answered, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. I really like that. And not the self-righteous, not the religious stuff shirts. 
Why do those who truly, simply follow Jesus Christ suffer? Because they can take it. And if you look at the opening of this letter, the first nine verses, he lays out, we have a living hope. We have a living trust. We have joy inexpressible. We have a living inheritance. All of the stuff he lays out first, and then he goes into suffering to say, hey, if you suffer, Jesus knows you can handle it. He knows you can take it and He is using it in your life. Now you might say, but but wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Yeah, we talked about that at communion, right? Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But I guarantee you, with the exception of those three times we mentioned, you never would have known Jesus was a man of sorrows. The children couldn't wait to sit in His lap. The people couldn't wait to be around him. You don't rush up to a prophet of doom. Oh yeah, he's, he's prophesying all kinds of horrible things. He's just a bummer to be around. Can't wait for the next teaching. No, Jesus was not a bummer. He was a man of sorrows because he knew the sorrow of the world. And yet, he was never a man who was, woe is me. Remember what we said, the three times that Jesus wept were all others centered. The sorrow he felt was for other people, not for himself. But read on, verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you, and that is huge. So don't miss this. Don't be sorrowful. Be Shekinahed. Right? Be Shekinahed. That is... Obtain the Shekinah glory of God. Have you heard that phrase, the Shekinah glory? Shekinah is a Hebrew word. It's used a lot in the church. Oh yeah, the Shekinah glory. It's a word that literally in the Hebrew, Shekinah, means dwelling. The dwelling of glory. And what did Peter just say? If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And he is talking about... The dwelling of glory, the Shekinah. Shekinah. He is talking about that, that same glory that dwelled in the temple of Solomon, filled up the temple. The Shekinah glory of God. He's talking about, by the way, the Shekinah also traveled with the wilderness with the Israelites through the wilderness. You remember that? The cloud by day and the fire by night? That was the Shekinah glory of God that covered the people and protected them and kept them warm at night and covered from the bright sun of the day for 40 years the Shekinah glory. And that glory filled the temple. And Peter here, he's echoing a prophecy of Messiah. Listen to it. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Well, Isaiah said that's what would happen with Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory and of God would rest on Jesus. What happened at His baptism? He comes up out of the water and the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. And the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the kind of glory rested on Jesus. By the way, Peter saw it on the mountain of transfiguration. When Jesus was lit up, shekinahed, you might say, before them, 
Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus took with Him Peter and Yaakov and John, His brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. Man, in that moment, it, whoa! The Shekinah! The dwelling of glory of God right there on Jesus. Here's what is mind-boggling. That same glory rests on you when you're reviled for the name of Christ. The Shekinah glory is on you, is on me. It's mind-blowing. It's hard to even comprehend. The reality is the Bible says that, man, you realize that when you're baptized, you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Do you realize the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside you? Do you realize that the Holy Spirit will baptize you, will fill you, will anoint you, will empower you? So He's in me, He's beside me, He's upon me, He's all over me, the Shekinah glory of God. And that glory shines bright when we are reviled for the name of Christ. Suddenly it made sense to me. Jesus said, Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed in this. How am I blessed in this? The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That is marvelous. Don't be sorrowful. Be shekinahed. And don't be surprised. Be sanctified. Number three, don't be self-inflicted. Look at verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Now, I'm pretty sure we're low on murderers in the fellowship. haven't met one yet. Now, if that happens to be you, I don't want to know. I'm pretty sure we're, we're low on thieves. I, I don't know many thieves in, in the British Christian Fellowship, although I am missing a coffee mug, blue coffee tumbler, my daughter gave it to me. It's gone missing. <laughs> Don't suffer as a thief. Just return it to my office and nothing will be said. We'll let it go. Murderers and thieves and evildoers. And by the way, evildoer in indicates maliciously. You are about doing evil. I don't see a whole lot of that in our church fellowship. Troublesome meddlers. How did that make the list? Why, why, Peter, would you add that in there? Because now suddenly I feel like I'm walking alongside the murderers. The troublesome meddler. Why does he add that in there? You need to understand, and, and I, I get this, that the busybody can do as much unintentional harm as the murderer can do intentional harm. That the gossip can kill a spirit that the gossip can steal joy. That the troublesome meddler, the busybody, can unintentionally hurt so easily in a fellowship where love is supposed to be primary. Don't be self-inflicted. What do you mean, Rick? I mean troublesome meddlers not only inflict issues and pain on other people, however unintentionally, but they do so on themselves. On themselves. They cause pain that they would never experience if they would just keep their big noses in their own beeswax. Don't meddle. Don't involve yourselves in things that that don't have anything to do with you. Well, but, but this person's sinning over here and we must gather and pray for them. Hey, pray for them. Just don't talk about them. 
or go to them. But when we meddle in things and when we gossip about things and we, and we involve ourselves in things, then we're kicking the hornet's nest and we end up in messes ourselves. It's self-inflicted suffering that you don't need. I don't need. Don't do it. Don't self-inflict. Paul described these people, 1 Timothy 5.13, as those who go around from house to house and do not, they're not merely idle, but they're gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, here's the prescription, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands. I read that, and you know what I think of? Jesus. From the carpenter shop to the cross, He worked with His own hands. Whether He was nailing wood together or being nailed to the wood, He worked with His own hands on behalf of of other people. And don't be self-inflicted. Be sacrificed. Be sacrificed. Verse 16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. What name? Christianos. If you're a Christian and you suffer for it, praise the Lord. Man, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a way to, to glorify God, to be sacrificed for the name of Christ as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. It saddens me when churches flee the name. Let's call ourselves something else because Christian, you know, has a negative connotation. It's always had a negative connotation. That was the very beginning of the name. You know that Romans had a name for themselves. As followers of Caesar, they called themselves Caesarianos. The Caesarianos, the followers of our Lord and our God, Caesar. But in Rome, there was that group of people, and they refused to give allegiance to Caesar as Lord. In fact, what was weird is they gave their loyalty to this weak, crucified Judean criminal. So the Caesarianos, the, the Caesar followers, gave them this derogatory name, the Christianos. They began to call them Christianos. As a way of saying, you're not one of us. You're a different group. And you're a weird little group. The Christianos. You know that name is just used three times in the Bible and and not really by themselves. In fact, the only one who applies this directly to us as believers is Peter. The other two instances, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christianos in Antioch. And it was derogatory. And then in Acts 26, verse 28, Agrippa, King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christianos. And of course there would be laughing in the theater around him. You're going to try and make me one of the Christiana, Caesarianos. And then the third time, of course, Peter says, right here, if you suffer as a Christian, As a Christianos, you are not to be ashamed. It's not a source of shame. It's a source of glory. Don't be self-inflicted. Be sacrificed. In the name. Three times. Christianos, Christianos, Christianos. Three is the number of resurrection. And three times the word Christianos is used in the New Testament. And I find that fascinating. I don't think that's by mistake. Because the Christianos are the people of the resurrection. Amen? So it's part of the joy that we carry even into suffering, even into death. I'm a resurrected one. I am and will be, and death has no hold on me. But let me tell you something else about Christianity that's interesting. It is unlike any other faith. In fact, it's absolutely unique in this 
It is not a religion of navel-gazing self-actualization. If that's what you're thinking Christianity is, think again. Because Christianity, the following after Jesus, is a faith of self-sacrifice. It's a trusting in Him and giving up of myself. Peter said back in chapter 2, verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we talk about those spiritual sacrifices are worship. Sacrifice is an act of worship. But it's not just worship singing songs on a Sunday morning. When you are sacrificed, when you self-sacrifice in the name of Jesus, you're worshiping. You may not be singing or playing an instrument or reading a psalm, but when you are self-sacrificial in the name of Christ, you are worshiping God. Paul said in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now listen, this is important for us to get as, as Christians in this fellowship. I want to add this thought. The whole idea of self-sacrifice, if, if my ministry or my vision or my calling or any other act of Christian service becomes about me, there are only two possible outcomes. Pride or pain. I'll either be wound up or I will be wounded when I make it about me. This ministry is my baby. And I've developed this thing and I'm running this thing and it's going the way I want it to go. Well, what if it starts to morph into something else? You know what this church is compared to what it was when I started it? It's totally different. This is not what I expected. I love it. Praise the Lord because it's what He has done. But if I made this church about me, a low attendance Sunday would be painful. If I made this church about me, a high attendance out the door Sunday, that'd be cool. Because what I'm doing, Christianity is about self-sacrifice. Not self-sacrifice to be prideful. Oh, I've worked so hard and I've given up so much. Praise me. <laughs> Listen, Christianos, glorify God in this name. You're a Christian, you glorify Jesus. You live for Him. We live to bring the glory to Him. And so verse 17 he says, just three more verses, so hang with me. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. I want to encourage you, next time someone says to you, Christians are judgmental, you respond with that verse. Well, actually, the truth is, the judgment is supposed to begin with the household of God. So, you're saying I'm judgmental. Let me just tell you, I'm judged. And by the way, thank you for judging me. (laughs) As being judgmental. It's ironic. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. The word judgment here is krima in the Greek. And it can be translated condemnation, but more often than not, krima is translated judgment for discipline. It is now time that we are judged, that we are disciplined, that we are grown up by the work of God, by His Spirit. And Jesus said in John 9.39, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind 
What's interesting about this word is it works both to discipline and condemnation, depending on how you receive it. If you receive the judgment of God as discipline working in your life, if you say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and how unfathomable His ways, Romans 11.33. Or if you, like it says in Revelation 19, say, righteous and true are all His judgments, then you recognize the judgment of God as a good thing, as good for the household as disciplinary, as building up. That kind of judgment is good. And that's crema. And again, it's not necessarily condemnation. Where it's condemnation and definitely condemning judgment, that's the word kata crema. Kata crema, condemnation. Where it's talked about as a donut, that's crispy crema. Okay. Or if it's a substitute for a cup of joe, a milk substitute, that would be coffee crema. There are all kinds of crema out there. But but the crema we're talking about here is discipline. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. The discipline starts here. Don't be, number four, self-righteous. As suffering comes and goes, and as we follow Jesus, and we live for Him, and we attempt to be all of these things, and to deal with suffering in such a way, don't be self-righteous. We ought to be judged. We ought to be disciplined. And as long as every one of us draw breath in this life, we are not beyond the refining judgment of God. There's still more He's doing. You know the, hey, be nice to me, God isn't finished with me yet. Well, that's your entire life. That's my entire life. He's done when I'm home. Until then i got to deal with this judgment. It's good judgment. It's godly judgment. It's the judgment that the Hebrew pastor talked about in Hebrews 12. When he quoted Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. The Lord loves, beloved, He loves those whom He reproves, even as a father loves the son in whom He delights. So so the discipline of God's going to come. You might find in your life, man, you're suffering for something. You're like, God, why is this happening? And He's like, I'm working with you. I'm drawing you through this to get you to the other side. And listen, Christianos, beloved, know that whatever sorrow or suffering or pain you might experience on earth, know this, it's as bad as it will ever be. It's never going to be worse in eternity. But for those who suffer outside the household of God, this is as good as it will ever get. The best you can possibly experience is this life outside of Jesus. Verse 17, continuing. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he quotes Proverbs 11.31, If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Look around. If you're looking at a bunch of saved people, a bunch of Christianos here, that did not happen easily. Salvation was hard fought and blood bought by Jesus on the cross. Your salvation and mine did not come cheap. Wasn't Oh, no big deal. God, God got it. He took care of it. No, it cost him everything. Salvation does not come easily. Jesus said, Luke 18, 25, 
It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And to say that at that time and in that culture was to a people who thought if you were rich, you were good. If you're rich, you're blessed and therefore righteous. And if a righteous person can't go to heaven any more than a camel can go through the eye of a needle. Have you heard that theological uh, explanation of the camel through the eye of a needle? I love this. Well, actually, the eye of a needle was the way that they referred to the gate of a city gate that might have been low, so the camel had to stoop down to go through it, but it was possible. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was talking about the eye of a needle and a camel. (laughs) The point he's making is impossible. Not doable by any human standard. Salvation is impossible. And the apostles hear this and go, what are we doing? Who then can be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know, with people, that's impossible. With God, you know the rest. All things are possible. He makes salvation possible. But listen, the point that Peter's making is heartbreaking. What about those who don't obey the gospel of God? Who reject the simple trusting in Jesus. Who will not do it. What about them? If it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The one who says, I want nothing to do with Jesus. Who is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through Him. What about them? Paul already told us in 1 Corinthians 3.12, I repeat this from earlier, if any man builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, or precious stones, and he's describing faith, or wood, hay, or straw, which describes a human approach, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. Listen, the same fire that purifies the faith that is gold consumes the straw. The judgment that disciplines and matures me, grows me up, builds me up in Jesus as His beloved, that judgment will consume those who reject Jesus. Which is why I said earlier, you will either suffer in Christ or you will suffer. It's got to be one of the two. So, don't be self-righteous. Be submitted. Verse 19. Therefore, Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. You know what that says? God has a will in your suffering. Your suffering, your heartache, your difficulty, your sorrow, if you have it, if you're in that right now, God knew. He knew it was coming. He knew who it would hit. He knew how it would affect you. And He has a will in it. And I don't say that lightly. I say it as one who has suffered. He has a will in your suffering. The question is, will you entrust your soul to a faithful Creator? Meaning what? Meaning I can entrust my mind with my own suffering and I spin out all kinds of scenarios about how I should deal with it or what's going on or how could this happen to me and woe is me and I go spinning off. Or I can entrust my soul, my thoughts, my very life. I can entrust to a faithful Creator. Why a faithful Creator? Because He made you. He knows you. 
He knit you together in your mother's womb. And therefore, as the faithful Creator, knows what His creation can handle. He knows what you can take. If you've ever been one that says, Father, I can't take any more of this, guess what? Either He knows you can't take any more of it and He's not going to give you any more, or He knows, no, you can handle a little bit more. The will of God in my suffering. How do I respond to that? I entrust. I entrust my soul to a faithful Creator. That word entrust, and I'm going to end with this, so get this. This is a word Peter had heard. In fact, it's a word he applied to Jesus in verse 23 of chapter 2. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Entrust your soul. If you're reviled, if you're suffering, if you're in pain, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Don't be self-righteous. Be submitted to him. The word entrust here is paratithamai. It's, it's a, a Greek word that is, means like, like a trust. A, as in handing over to someone a deposit to be held in trust. Which was serious business in Roman law. If you handed someone uh, an inheritance or a fortune or something, said, I need you to hold this in trust, they would sign the scrolls, and that person was liable for the entire amount. To keep it and be sure it was returned to you at the proper time. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. means you make your deposit, your hope, your salvation, your inheritance, your very future, you entrust it to Him. So that when you're in the mess of the suffering, you know that on the other side of it, you've already entrusted everything to Him. He's going to get you through it. He's going to lead you through it and see you through it. But I'll tell you the reason I think that Peter finally says this in verse 19, that those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator, is he heard Jesus say that. When? On the cross. Luke 23, 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Same word. I commend my spirit, some translations say, but Jesus cried out at the last, I entrust my spirit to you. And having said this, Luke tells us, He died. The beloved Son died for you, the beloved. Claiming a full trusting of God that we might live and that we might become the agapetos, the beloved sons and daughters. So sum it up. Don't be surprised. Don't be sorrowful, don't be self-inflicted, don't be self-righteous. Rather, be sanctified. (laughs) Be shekinahed with the Spirit of God and of glory. Be sacrificial. Be submitted. Beloved, Christianos, we never know when Nero is going to set a fire. We never know when Rome is going to burn. But this much we do know. That Jesus took the lead in all suffering. Went before us in all pain. He is the one who knows the way. He, He is the way through the valley of the shadow of death.